0: And so this morning, as we head towards Easter, I'd like to begin a new sermon series from the Gospel of Matthew. So It's going to be quite an interrupted series, actually. Um, I'll start the series this week. Uh, next week, I've got a weekend off, and Bernadette's going to be preaching. She'll be preaching from Matthew, but not the section that we're looking at. I'll be back for another week, and then we've got our combined service, (laughs) so it'll be a bit hit and miss as we begin, but whenever I'm preaching, uh, we'll be looking uh, at Matthew's Gospel. So if you cast your minds back, you may remember that last year we had a look at Matthew chapters five to seven. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and in our new series, I thought we'd continue on a little bit, and we'll look at three more chapters from Matthew's Gospel Matthew 8, 9, and 10. So if we keep this up, looking at three chapters of Matthew a year, we should finish Matthew's Gospel in about 2028. I've, I've entitled this series, When Jesus Confronts the World. And it's quite interesting. This series happens to coincide with someone buying me a book by the biblical scholar Don Carson, which happens to be on Matthew's chapter 8, 9, and 10 and happens to be called when Jesus confronts the world. So, a really timely, happy coincidence. Before we look at the verses that we're going to look at uh, this morning, let me just describe something of the literary background to these chapters. Because in his Gospel, Matthew has taken some incidents from the life of Jesus, and he's arranged them in a particular way. Uh, While he is giving us accurate information about Jesus and his ministry, uh, while much is chronological, at the same time he's arranged these things in a certain way to make a particular point. So at the end of Matthew chapter 4, just before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then at the end of chapter 9, Matthew uses the same phrase. He says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So those two verses really act as a huge set of brackets that surround chapters 5 to 9. In chapters 5 to 7, we have a description of Jesus' teaching and proclamation ministry. And now in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to get a description of Jesus' healing ministry. If you just have a look at the next slide, you'll see those those two main blocks. Jesus' teaching and proclaiming, Matthew 5 to 7, healing, chapters 8 and 9. And then chapter 10 is the commissioning of the disciples. Chapters 8 to 10 have got their own structure as well. Let me show you this. You're going to need an eye test for this, but this is kind of where we're going over the next three weeks. Basically, you've got three sets of three miracle accounts interspersed with examples of and teaching about discipleship. So you've got three miracle accounts, the man with leprosy, Centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law. You've then got discipleship, uh, the scribe who wants to follow Jesus, a would-be disciple who says, I'll follow you. You've then got another three miracle uh, stories. You've then got more discipleship as Matthew becomes a disciple. John's disciples come and question Jesus. Then another three miracle stories and then the commissioning of the disciples. So you've got these miracles interspersed with discipleship, which means that these chapters are really asking two questions. Number one, who is Jesus? And number two, how do we respond to him? That's the message of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? Well, with all of that background in mind, let's dive in and look at the first 17 verses of chapter 8. This this is the first series of of miracle accounts. When Jesus came down from the mountainside uh, after delivering his Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, But go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go. It will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. This is God's word. So in this passage, the Lord Jesus reaches out to three individuals who in those days would have been considered outcasts. The man with leprosy, as we'll see in a moment, would have been a literal outcast from society, unable to be part of God's community. The Roman centurion was a Gentile and a member of the despised ruling Roman authorities And Peter's mother-in-law was a woman who in those days was considered to be a second-class citizen. So here we see Jesus, and we see his compassion to three people who were outsiders, despised, marginalized. And we're going to look at them one at a time and pick up a couple of points along the way. So firstly, we have this man with leprosy. And we're not 100% sure if this was literal leprosy, uh, what is now known as Hansen's disease, to get rid of the stigma of leprosy. But in fact, it didn't really matter whether this was leprosy or some other kind of uh, skin disease because the effects were pretty much the same. Uh, If it was uh, genuine leprosy, that's a condition where you lose feeling in your body. Uh, which means that your body is then easily damaged as you, you bang it or you bump it or you burn it, um, and you're not aware of it. It's terrible, in, uh, particularly in rural areas where you've got animals that are in the night and you know, it's not go into all of that. But over the time, the, the disease spreads. Um, it affects your extremities. Uh, you often become disfigured. Uh, and the eventual uh, end result is, is death. Leprosy was, in fact, a living death. Those who had leprosy were cut off from humanity. They had to live alone. Uh, Listen to some things that the law had to say in regard to those with leprosy. In the book of Leviticus, the law said, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. This man comes to Jesus, and his whole posture and approach, I think, are very instructive. He he kneels before Jesus, which may just have been a picture of desperation, but kneeling was something you did before God. He addresses Jesus as Lord, which is always an interesting word in the New Testament. Uh, The word Lord can just be a polite form of address, like our word sir, but also the word Lord refers to God, and there's always also this sort of double meaning when it comes to this word in the New Testament. Some people call Jesus Lord, and they mean what they say. Think of Thomas at the end of John's Gospel, my Lord and my God. Some people call Jesus Lord, and they have no idea who he really is. And we're not sure exactly what the case is here. Uh, I don't think that this man worshipped Jesus or acknowledged him as God in the same way that later Christians would. But the way he approaches Jesus, uh, the confidence that he has in Jesus, certainly foreshadows discipleship. He recognizes Jesus' authority. Something about this man has struck him. He says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, that's not something that you can go and ask anyone to do for you. In fact, there's a lovely passage in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a lovely story, a very amusing story, which illustrates this. Uh, The king of Aram has an army commander uh, called Naaman who has leprosy. And Naaman's little Israelite servant girl tells him that Elisha the prophet in Israel will be able to heal him. And Naaman tells the king of Aram this, and the king of Aram sends Naaman to Israel with a letter. Except he doesn't go directly to Elisha, instead he goes to the king of Israel. We read in 2 Kings that the letter he took to the king of Israel read... With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And as you can imagine, the king of Israel has a fit. As soon as he reads the letter, he tears his robes and says, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. You notice here then in this passage that healing leprosy is something that God alone can do. And it's about as easy as raising someone from the dead. And this unknown man with leprosy somehow recognizes that Jesus has that kind of authority. Jesus, you can make me clean i mentioned this already, but, but look at his posture, not, not physically, but verbally. The man recognizes Jesus' power. You can make me clean. But he recognizes Jesus' sovereignty, if you are willing. This past week, I read something by a pastor who said that when we pray for healing, we shouldn't pray if it be thy will kind of prayers. Of the thousands of people he's seen healed, he's never seen anyone healed from that kind of prayer. Well, here is one of those kind of prayers, if you are willing. And here, I believe, are two crucial elements in praying for healing, that we acknowledge Jesus' power and we recognize Jesus' sovereignty. Notice the compassion of Jesus, that he reaches out his hand and touches the man he didn't need to do that we're going to see in a moment that jesus can heal people without touching them this man though wouldn't have been touched for years no one who didn't have leprosy would ever have touched him and probably some of his fellow sufferers would have been cautious of touching him lest they damage him he hasn't been touched in years he's literally one of the untouchables but Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him. Reminds me of the late Princess Diana. Remember, one of the things that most endeared us to Diana was the fact that she was prepared to interact with folk that the world marginalized. Uh, Here she is picking up a baby with AIDS. Uh, She often touched AIDS patients, and those were in the early days when we didn't even know everything we know about AIDS today. Jesus touches this man and he says, I am willing, be clean. And we read that immediately he was cured of his leprosy. So interesting, normally leprosy defiled you if you touched that person. Here, instead of it defiling Jesus, Jesus cleanses this man. And Jesus tells him not to tell anyone about what has happened to him, possibly because Jesus doesn't want large crowds following him, just looking for a miracle. But the most significant thing is that Jesus tells him to go and show himself to the priest, because that's how you were declared clean. The the, the priests in Jesus' day couldn't cure leprosy. All that they could do was acknowledge that God had cleansed the person. So you would go to the priest, he would observe you for a number of days, he would declare you clean, and you would then offer a sacrifice in thanks to God. And Jesus says, go and do this so that you can be a testimony to the priest. You see, in the Old Testament, the priest would declare, this man has been cleansed by God. On this particular day, the priest would declare, this man has been healed by Jesus, Implication? Jesus is God. This healing will be a testimony to who Jesus is, that here is one who is greater than Moses, one to whom the law points. Jesus' miracle is a testimony to who he is. God come in the flesh. The second person that Jesus heals is a Gentile. Interesting, in the book of Romans, Paul says on several occasions that salvation is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And we see that here too. Jesus' ministry was primarily for the Jewish nation, but the Gentiles are invited as well. And that would have been a great encouragement to the original readers of Matthew's Gospel because some of them were Gentiles who'd never seen Jesus, but who trusted him and experienced his power in their lives. The man in question is a Roman centurion. And not that he's sick, but the, he has a servant paralyzed at home. And he too approaches Jesus with great respect. He's a fairly important man. He's in charge of a hundred men. And yet he addresses Jesus as Lord. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus says, well, I'll go and heal him. That would have meant Jesus entering the home of a Gentile. Uh, Normally, Jewish people wouldn't enter the homes of Gentiles, uh, but Jesus is willing to do this. But the Roman centurion says this is unnecessary. Maybe he wanted to spare Jesus the embarrassment of coming and visiting a Gentile home or the potential defilement of entering his home, but above that he recognizes that it's unnecessary for Jesus to do this. He recognizes that Jesus has the authority to bring about healing with just a word. Look again at what he says. Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word that my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I, t- I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, in the Roman military system, all authority was found in the emperor, and he delegated that authority down through the, la- through the ranks, So because the centurion is under the emperor's authority, when the centurion spoke, he spoke with the emperor's authority, and so his command was obeyed. You know, a foot soldier who disobeyed him wouldn't be defying a centurion. He would be defying the emperor, Rome itself, with all of its imperial majesty and might. And the centurion applies this to Jesus. He says, when I speak... Rome speaks. And Jesus, you're someone under authority. You're under God's authority. And when you speak, God speaks. That's what amazes Jesus. Jesus isn't amazed that this man can believe that he can heal at a distance. Jesus is amazed that this man, a Gentile, a foreigner, recognizes the authority of Jesus and therefore the identity of Jesus. And so we read in verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. The third person whom Jesus heals is Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was a married man. It seems that his mother-in-law lived with him and his wife in Capernaum. Verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother in law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. Again, notice that Jesus touches her. That's not something that uh, Jewish rabbis would have done ordinarily. And it's interesting to see the effect that this healing had on this lady. Because Matthew says that this lady began to serve Jesus. Notice it's just Jesus, not everyone else in the room. The verb that, she, that he uses is in the imperfect tense, which means to start to serve continually. And the word that he uses is the Greek word diakoneo, which later referred to Christian service. You know, That's where we get our word deacon from. And it's quite likely that Matthew is saying that Peter's mom-in-law began the life of discipleship at this point. Having experienced Jesus' healing touch, she follows him as a disciple, not necessarily around the country, but she places her faith, her trust, her life in Jesus. She follows him. In their Gospels, Mark and Luke tell us that this miracle took place on the Sabbath, which explains why a whole lot of other people came and visited Jesus that evening. They were waiting for the Sabbath to be over. We read verse 16, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And then Matthew makes an interesting comment. He summarizes all of this, and he says... This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, Matthew here could simply be saying that during his earthly ministry, Jesus took up our infirmities. I mean, he takes upon himself this man's leprosy and cleanses it. He takes upon himself the sickness of this lady But I think there's slightly more to the quotation from Matthew here. We've just been studying Isaiah, so you all know that this comes from Isaiah 53, one of the servant songs, which describes God's servant as taking up our sins. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So Matthew's taking a passage that speaks about the suffering servant's death for our sins, and he applies it to Jesus' healing ministry. Why? Why? Well, I think we can say that in a sense, all sickness is a result of sin. Let me quickly explain what I mean here. Sometimes there's a direct link between sinful behavior and physical illness. So John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who's been an invalid for the past 38 years at the Pool of Bethesda, and we read that afterwards Jesus finds him and says to him, see, you are well again Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. In that case, there was a direct link between the man's sin and his illness. Uh, If you become an alcoholic, uh, don't be surprised if you get liver cirrhosis. Drug abuse can lead to a whole lot of physical ailments. Sometimes guilt over unconfessed sin or living a double life can lead us to depression. But not all sin has a direct link. So John chapter 9, the disciples see a man who's been born blind. And they say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So some sickness has a direct link with with sin, But all illness has an indirect link with sin, in that sickness and illness and cancer, death, were never part of God's perfect world. Sickness entered our world as a result of sin. Matthew sees Jesus as coming into the world to save people from sin. Right there on the first page of Matthew's Gospel, the angel says to Joseph, she'll give birth to a son, you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus' death on the cross was a decisive blow to sin, and all of the effects of sin, including sickness and death. I think it's true then to say that any healing we experience in the present is due to Jesus' death on the cross and all that he purchased for us there. It's quite interesting then that people were healed before Jesus' death on the cross in the same way in which some people were forgiven their sins before Jesus' death on the cross. We'll see that in a couple of weeks as Jesus says to a man, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus purchased all that we need on the cross. But all that Jesus purchased for us on the cross hasn't reached its ultimate consummation yet. Jesus' death on the cross is a promise, an assurance, certain hope that one day there'll be no more crying or pain or sickness or death. But the fact of the matter is that we still struggle with these things until Jesus returns. Jesus' death on the cross ensures that my sin is forgiven, but I'll continue to struggle with sin until I see Jesus, and then it will be dealt with. Jesus' death on the cross results in my receiving the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing a much fuller and deeper relationship one day when Jesus returns. Jesus' death on the cross ensures that I have a resurrection body, but I don't insist that people receive it now and accuse them of having too little faith because they're not receiving that now. In other words, there's an already and a not yet to our Christian walk. So in between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, the scriptural records show that there are people who get sick and suffer and die, and there are people who get healed and eventually die. (laughs) We see that in the Bible. We don't have time to go into it all this morning, but let me just point out a couple of things. The Apostle Paul got sick. 2 Corinthians 12, he speaks about a thorn in the flesh, and as far as I can see, most scholars would suggest that that was a physical ailment. Even if we're not 100% sure of that one, Paul writes to the Galatians, and he reminds them that his mission there was as a result of illness, uh, possibly something to do with his eyes. Let me, let me read it to you. He says, As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes, and given them to me. Not only was Paul not immediately healed on that occasion, but there were times when Paul didn't heal others. So at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul writes and he says, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. So the evidence from Scripture is that between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, there are some people who are healed and there are some people who are not, and I have no idea how this works. I think there are two equal and opposite mistakes that we can make, though. The first mistake would be to say there's no longer any healing, uh, to believe that healing stopped with Jesus and the disciples. And some people believe this theologically, and others believe it practically, and that they never ask God for healing. That would be the first mistake. The second mistake would be to say that God always heals that our healing has been purchased on the cross and is there for the taking if only we know just the right technique or the right words or have enough faith. We're probably going to come back to this a couple of times uh, through this series, so that's probably enough for now. We can say, though, that the cross is the basis for all the blessings that come to us as God's children, some of which come now many of which will come finally and perfectly on the day that we see Jesus. We've looked at a lot this morning. What what does this mean for us practically? Matthew wants us to have a look at Jesus. He's painting a picture of Jesus here, and he's wanting us to ask the question, who is this man? A man whose touch both brings cleansing and healing. A man who can heal with just a word from a distance. A wonderfully compassionate man who treats the outcasts of society with the utmost respect and care and kindness and consideration. Wouldn't you want to know a person like this? Wouldn't you want a like this. But Matthew doesn't just want us to ask the question, who is this man? Jesus want, uh, Matthew wants to give us the answer. This man is uniquely different from any man who's ever lived or will ever live. This man can do things that only God can do he can heal leprosy, only God can do that. He speaks with the same authority as God. What Jesus says, God says. And if this man is God, if this man is who Matthew says, then we have to respond. Notice in this passage that there are actually two responses to Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll know that that picture comes from the book of Isaiah, that there'll be many of the Gentiles who come to know Israel's God in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying here that many people who think that they're part of this kingdom are actually outside of the kingdom. Jesus is referring to hell in these verses. Now, we had a whole subject, uh, we had a whole sermon rather on this subject a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going back there. Once was enough for all of us. Just to say, though, that in this passage, hell isn't a doctrine used to frighten unbelievers, it's a doctrine used to warn those who think they are believers. Do you see that here? He's not wanting to frighten those who don't believe in him. He's trying to warn those who think that they're part of his kingdom and who are not. And the question we must ask ourselves is, am I in the kingdom? And perhaps we discover that by way of contrast. Did you know that later in Matthew's Gospel, there are at least two occasions where people ask Jesus for a miracle? and he refuses their request. Twice, Matthew 12, Matthew 16, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, teacher, we want a sign from you. Jesus doesn't answer their request. He says, when evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, you say today it'll be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret it the sign of the times. The man with leprosy, the Roman centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, saw exactly the same signs as you did and believed in me, followed me, knelt before me. But you saw the same signs and yet don't want a relationship with me. You simply want to use me for your own purposes. This is the question for us this morning then are we perhaps in that position? Wanting Jesus for ourselves, just wanting his approval for our own plans, just nodding to him for half an hour on Sunday while we get on with the rest of our lives? Or do we do what the leper and the Roman centurion did? We look at Jesus as he's portrayed here in Matthew's Gospel. We see him as God, and we kneel at his feet, and we call him Lord. Because someone like this, we don't instruct. We simply bow before him and say, command me, use me, you've created me, you've redeemed me, with you all, there is all power. You hold the universe together. You don't need me as your advisor, And from that position, out of relationship with him, we humbly bring our request to him, recognizing that our priorities might not be his priorities. We say, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and I will be healed.